0: Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry, Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood feminist. feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first installment of my Bad Girls series, I'm so excited to jump into it with you all, but I have a few things that I want to say just before we start the episode. Um, I want to give another thank you to everybody who has been leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. We've been getting so many lately, and we really appreciate it, and we want you to keep it up. So if you haven't already or if you're a new listener, that is really the best way that you can support us as a podcast, as a business, and we really appreciate all of your wonderful positive words in response to us. Also, if you want to keep track of what we're doing on a day-to-day, go ahead and follow us on Instagram. That's kind of where everything is at. You can follow us at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Okay, cool. Let's get into the story. On May 31st, 1968, it was a sunny day in Manhattan. Andy Warhol was making his way to his factory in Union Square when he saw Valerie Solanas waiting for him. He was most likely not pleased to see her as she had been badgering him to produce her play and was also trying to recruit him into her radical feminist group. They rode the elevator together, Valerie holding a brown paper bag. When they reached the studio, they were met with Mario Amaya and Paul Morrissey, fellow factory regulars. Warhol complimented Valerie on her appearance as she was uncharacteristically wearing makeup that day. Andy took a phone call. Morrissey left to use the bathroom. Then... Three shots rang out. Valerie had shot Andy Warhol. Now, you may be wondering why I'm telling you the story of this bad, bad feminist. She's honestly probably a big reason why so many feminists get a bad name, are seen as radical and untamed, dangerous even, and man-hating. And if you've listened to the show long enough, you know that true feminism isn't this way. That is not our belief on this show. But the fact that Valerie Solanas has been tied to the word feminism haunts the movement. So so let's learn a little bit about who she is and what her beliefs are, shall we? Valerie Solanus was born on April 9th, 1936 to Louis, Lou, Solanus, and her mother, Dorothy. Obviously, I love that her mother's name is Dorothy. Her sister, Judith, would be born two years later. When she was young, she was very close to her father, but all of that changed when she was four years old. Her parents separated and sent Valerie and Judith to live with their grandparents in Atlantic City. After this, Valerie kind of became a troublemaker. She hated bullies and was a protector for students against them. I also read somewhere that she once punched a nun. Her sister Judith said that Valerie refused anything feminine as a kid. She was also really bright. She learned to read and write at an early age and could play piano by the time she was seven. She carried a doll named Sally and loved her dog Stinky and Turtle named Myrtle. Obviously, very smart girl. After the divorce, her mother remarried a guy named Red, who Valerie was not very fond of. She would spend as much time away from her mother's house as possible and was usually couch surfing the area. When Valerie was six, her father suggested that she come to live with him on the weekends, which must have made Valerie feel really special as she got to spend time with her favorite person ever. A report from a psychologist who spoke with Valerie in 1968 states that it was during this time that her father began molesting her. This report says... Valerie describes a rather pitiful childhood, including parental conflict, sexual molestation by her father, and frequent separation from her home. The the patient added that when she was an adolescent, she was a, quote, hellraiser. Her sister Judith said in her memoir, now before I give this quote that her sister Judith gave in her memoir, I want to mention the fact that Valerie is going to go on to kind of write some sort of radical feminist manifesto which is kind of the tie to her demise and it's kind of mentioned in here so her sister judith said valerie's molestation by her own father the one man she truly loved catapulted her into an obscene perverted world she could not comprehend how this abuse affected her and whether it influenced her ideas in the scum manifesto and other writings remains an open question she quotes radical feminist Jane Caputi, who met Valerie in the mid 70s, who said, It's not as simple as the abuse leads to the manifesto. As a teen, Valerie participated in petty crime and was starting to display sexually promiscuous behavior, which, considering the fact that she had been abused by her father at such a young age, it's not uncommon for someone to behave that way. At the age of 14, Valerie got pregnant. She gave birth to a girl who she named Linda in 1951. Dorothy raised Linda as Valerie's sister. The girl discovered her true parentage much later, but she said that she had long suspected that Valerie was her real mother much before it was confirmed. Valerie kept this pregnancy and birth a secret, and she never even told her closest peers. She became pregnant again the next year when she was 15, and this time to a sailor on leave from the Korean War. The sailor's family really wanted to keep the baby, and Valerie agreed as long as the family would pay for her to attend college. The baby was named David, and Valerie stayed with the Sailors' family for a while before leaving for college. Years later, David spoke up for his mother, saying, Valerie Solanus was an unwed mother of the 1950s. The word choice wasn't in the vocabulary. She was a victim of society. When she left David, she went to the University of Maryland Park College, where men easily outnumbered the women, black students had just been allowed to attend three years prior, and the university upheld all sorts of conservative patriarchal standards. While many of the young women at the time donned skirts and sweaters, spending their time dreaming of finding a husband, you could find Valerie sans makeup, wearing jeans, and casual shoes. She wasn't out at the time, but Valerie was a lesbian, sticking out desperately in a conservative nightmare. In 1957, she joined Sai Chai, an honor society at the school, and began writing to the school paper. She would often comment on the sexism she witnessed on campus. One letter in particular left a strong mark. She was responding to a student by the last name Parr who wrote a paper claiming that women only sought college to find a suitable husband. Valerie didn't like this one bit and came back with what would be known as the dipped-in-blood letter. It says, Do I detect a touch of male arrogance and egotism in the astute report which Mr. Parr so thoughtfully prepared for us? The insipid innuendos advanced by him are representative of the type of rationalizations indulged in by typical, conceited, immature male. It is a characteristic of males in this caliber to blithely believe that women are wasting away without them. Such a belief enhances their blatantly bloated egos. She signed off the letter by saying... They say the pen is mightier than the sword, and my pen is dipped in blood. With this, she became known as Marilyn's own little suffragette, something that she probably didn't like all that much because it seems like she really wasn't a big fan of women and she wasn't really a fan of feminists. She graduated from college in 1958 with a degree in psychology. She attended grad school for a little bit at the University of Minnesota. Hey! Um, And she dreamt of moving to Greenwich Village in New York City. So she dropped out of grad school and she moved back to New Jersey, where she's from, and would travel to the village any chance she got. So she could be around other artists and like-minded people. And she really believed that Greenwich Village was where she was meant to be. During this time, Valerie began writing a play entitled, Up Your Ass a gender-bending tale that focused on bohemia, the counterculture in the village, and even had early traces of the gay community. Now, this play is vulgar and was never known for its literary feats. It seemed to most people that the intent was simply to shock people with its crudeness. In 1962, she moved to Manhattan, living in a women's lodging hotel in the Upper West Side. From 1962 to 65, she obsessively wrote on an old, big, heavy manual typewriter, which apparently she carried around with her everywhere she went. And she was homeless, so she really didn't have any place to keep it. Trying to make it as an artist wasn't a sure way to make a steady living, so she turned to begging and sex work to feed herself and sometimes even for a place to stay. She often missed rent. When Up Your Ass was completed in 1965, she struggled to find someone who would produce it. She had tried multiple producers and publishers to no avail, and they found the material too sexually explicit and vulgar. She eyed Andy Warhol as being the one who might finally see her genius. She wrote him a letter and sent a copy of the manuscript to him in 1965. By 1966, she still hadn't heard from Warhol about the play. She wrote him another letter asking him to return the manuscript— She didn't know this, but Warhol had lost it. He was also disinterested in the project. In 1965, she began writing The Scum Manifesto, which would go on to be her most notorious work. After her arrest, she said, Read my manifesto, and it will tell you what I am. Which is so creepy to me. It doesn't say who I am. It says what I am. (laughs) Chills. Okay. Scum stands for Society for Cutting Up Men. Awesome. Great. Wonderful. So this is how the opening of the manifesto goes. Life in the society being at best an utter bore and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women, there remains to be civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation, and destroy the male sex. She goes on to the problems with daddy's girls, saying that fatherhood teaches young girls to be passive, dependent, and to please the patriarchal head of household. She says, Men, in other words, feel so insecure about their masculinity that they intrude on and generally obliterate the autonomy of their wives and daughters, and even female strangers. Scum also paints sexual desire as a waste of time. The manifesto says that sex is the refuge of the mindless, and that sex is another way for a man to dominate a woman and make her more susceptible to bend to his will. She also opposes Freud in her manifesto, stating that women do not in fact have penis envy, but men have what she calls pussy envy. This is reminiscent of today's toxic masculinity, actually, in the way she writes it, saying that men have a desire to show more of a feminine side of themselves. So this is how the manifesto ends. The sick, irrational men, those who attempted to defend themselves against their disgustingness, when they see scum barreling down on them, they will cling in terror to Big Mama with her big, bouncy boobies, but boobies won't protect them against scum. Big Mama will be clinging to Big Daddy, who will be in the corner shitting his forceful, dynamic pants. Men who are rational, however, won't kick or struggle or raise a distressing fuss, but will sit back, relax, enjoy the show, and ride the waves of their demise. Such a happy message, right? It's all about like inclusion and equality and like hugs and love, right? No. For a time, she actually held scum meetings where she would share the manifesto, circulate ideas, and try to recruit members. The group included masochistic men, angry and abused women, gay youth, and people who were curious about Valerie's message. She had placed an ad in the Village Voice in 1967 announcing the formation of the group. In the announcement, she listed 47 ways in which men have made the world a, quote, garbage pail, including fatherhood, suburbs, and even love. During this time, she was still working hard to get up your ass up on stage. She had begun holding auditions at her residence in the Chelsea Hotel. She became friends with a 17-year-old gay man named Jeremiah. When he asked her what she thought of gay men, she said, You see, gay men are okay, but they've got to be taught to be more respectful of women's rights. I have big plans for gay men. Gosh, I really wish Keegan was here right now because I know her reactions to all of this manifesto would just be like, seething. Um, Mine definitely were seething, and reading some of these out loud is definitely like... Like, I feel like I'm reading a script as like a very, very twisted woman, which I guess is is exactly what's happening. So Jeremiah and Valerie held some auditions and continued sending out the manuscript to publishers to no success. So let's get into a little bit about how Valerie and Andy Warhol kind of collided ways Valerie and Warhol eventually met through a photographer named Nat Finkelstein, and the pair talked about up your ass at Warhol's factory. So at this time, Andy Warhol had this factory in New York City, which was a studio that doubled as this like meeting place for artists and misfits. And he would kind of like bring different artists in to work with him and kind of, you know, help their careers and things like that. The occupants were artists, drug users and celebrity hangers on. So it seems like at first Andy actually kind of liked Valerie, although I get the feeling that he got annoyed with her pretty quickly. He thought the title of the play was funny, so he invited her to come back to the factory another time. I found out that in August of 1967, she sent Warhol a scum recruiting paper to put in the ladies' bathroom at the factory. Later, she sent another copy for the men's room in hopes of growing her, quote, men's auxiliary for the movement. She also asked Warhol if he would begin filming immediately for the scum forums and rallies. She also sent Warhol his own poster that she asked him to keep under his pillow at night while he slept. Fucking creepy. When the two would meet in person, Valerie was filled with hope. She really felt like Warhol was going to make something of her and really believed in her beliefs, and she thought there was a friendship there. She would call the factory incessantly, asking for Warhol. He would often record their phone conversations because he found Valerie so amusing. But Warhol was stalling. He had had the script and scum manifesto for years, and he was still dragging his feet. Eventually, she was dropped from the factory, which ignited a hatred within her. She started referring to them as stupid stars and called Warhol a vulture and a thief. In return, he called her a hot water bottle with tits. Yikes. So around this time, her mental health was rapidly declining, and she was evicted from the Chelsea Hotel. She maintained that Warhol had cheated her out of money and stolen her work. He eventually admitted to her that he had lost the manuscript, and Valerie was furious. But she was also right. To make her feel better, Warhol cast her in his upcoming film, I, A Man, which showed one man's encounters trying to awkwardly flirt with six different women. The description of Valerie's character uh, calls her a, quote, butch lesbian, who rejects the man's pickup line, then after the man walks away, says slanderous things about him much like men would do to women in real life. Valerie later claimed that she never received payment of $25 for her part in the film, though Warhol disagreed. She began writing hateful letters to Warhol, one of them saying, I really do believe that if you don't have your lies and deception and notarized affidavits, you'd shrivel up and die. Valerie. In one letter, she told him of her plans to buy a gun. At the factory's new location in Manhattan on May 31st, 1968, at the factory's new location in Manhattan on May 31st, 1968, Warhol found Valerie outside the building, waiting. She had been asked to leave when she had arrived earlier, so she decided to ride the elevator up and down, waiting for Warhol to get on, which is the creepiest thing I've ever heard. When they got up to the studio, they saw Mario Amaya and Paul Morrissey there. Warhol began chatting on the phone, and Morrissey went to go use the bathroom. That's when Valerie pulled out a gun and shot Warhol three times. Only the third bullet hit him, entering his right armpit and exiting through his right lung. Warhol said the experience felt like a cherry bomb exploding inside of him. She then shot at Amaya and he was grazed in his back. Once Warhol reached the hospital, he was pronounced dead for a whole two minutes, but through many, many life-saving surgeries, he survived. He did, however, have to wear a surgical corset for the rest of his life. It looks pretty much exactly like it sounds, like a corset. It kind of sits right below his ribs and looks like it would go beneath his pants. Uh, There's a few photos of it that I'm seeing online, but I don't see any where he's, like, more naked, where you kind of see the whole thing. But there's a pretty famous photo of him that I'll post on the Instagram where you can see some scarring, and you can see the corset, and he's holding his chest and leaning up against a wall in what it—possibly his studio? I'm not sure, but— It's a photo that came up again and again in my research, so I'll put it up on the Instagram so you guys can see it. After the attempted murder, Valerie went out and just started roaming through Times Square, and eventually she reached a cop and confessed, saying that Warhol, quote, had too much control over my life. The next day, the New York Daily News ran a front page headline reading, Actress Shoots Andy Warhol. Well, this pissed Valerie off because being diminished to simply an actress was just unacceptable to her. So she contacted them and they retracted it. At her arraignment, she admitted to shooting Andy, but not because he refused to produce her play. In fact, she said it was the opposite reason, that he has legal claims to my works, which is still not a reason to shoot somebody. She told the judge, it's not often that I shoot somebody. I didn't do it for nothing. Warhol tied me up, lock, stock, and barrel. He was going to do something to me which would have ruined me. Now, we will discover later that Valerie is unwell. So while I may sound very judgmental of her behaviors, we'll find out later that she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So a lot of her paranoid activities and stalking really make sense with that diagnosis. This also makes quite a bit of sense because she chose to represent herself in court. She said that she was right in what she did and had no regrets. Which honestly, if I was in court and I really felt like what I had done was right, I don't know. Maybe I would be crazy enough to try to represent myself if I felt I had nothing to hide. The judge has those comments stricken from the record and she was sent to Bellevue Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. So there, they decided that she was mentally unstable to stand trial and was sent to a prison ward of Elmhurst Hospital, which sounds like a fucking nightmare from the pictures that I saw on Wikipedia. On June 28th, she was indicted on charges of attempted murder, assault, and illegal possession of a gun. In August, she was declared incompetent for trial once again and was sent to a state hospital for the criminally insane. Again, doesn't sound like a very good time. Later that month, Olympia Press finally published the Scum Manifesto. This is when Valerie finally underwent that psychiatric evaluation where they were able to diagnose her with paranoid schizophrenia. She was then well enough to stand trial by June 1969, where she represented herself. She pled guilty to reckless assault with intent to harm, and she was sentenced to three years in prison with one year served. After the trial, the village voice declared that Valerie, quote, has dedicated the remainder of her life to the avowed purpose of eliminating every single male from the face of the earth. This spoke to some women, including some leading feminists at the time, including Ty Grace Atkinson. She described Valerie as, quote, the first outstanding champion of women's rights, and, quote, a heroine of the feminist movement. Atkinson at the time was a member of NOW, which is the National Organization for Women, and after reading this, Betty Friedan removed her from the organization. Um, Atkinson then went on to create her own radical feminist group. When Valerie was released from prison in 1971, she went right back to stalking Andy Warhol and was soon arrested again in November of 1971. She would go on to be institutionalized numerous times. Unfortunately for Andy Warhol, he lived the rest of his life in fear that Valerie would find him and finish him off. He also had a large fear of hospitals after this attack because of the whole ordeal, and when he would get sick later in life, probably could have saved his life if he would have gone to the doctor sooner. It was reported in the late 70s that Valerie was homeless and continued to defend her political beliefs and was still pushing the manifesto and trying to get that play produced, (laughs) Andy Warhol died on February 22nd, 1987, at age 56, after a gallbladder surgery. If he had gone to the doctor sooner, his life would have been saved. In the 80s, it was heard that Valerie went by the name Onslow, O-N-Z-L-O-H. I don't know. She died on April 25, 1988, at the age of 52, of pneumonia in San Francisco. Her mother burned all of her belongings after she died. Valerie Solanus has been credited as starting the radical feminist movement. Feminist Catherine Lord wrote, quote, The feminist movement would not have happened without Valerie Solanus. Now, when she says the feminist movement, I think she means the radical feminist movement, because feminism started far before Valerie Solanus was born. She believed that since Valerie was so disowned by society and her beliefs, it led to a wave of radical feminist publications, which honestly might have been true. Her biographer, Brianne Fawes, says something else something that I really agree with. She describes Valerie as someone who alienated herself from the feminist movement and never wanted to be a part of it. And that's the thing. I originally heard about Valerie Solanas on an episode of the podcast series Female Criminals, and that was originally what really made me want to talk about her. Because there is this tie to feminism and radical feminism as being something that is very militant and scary and dangerous. And I think it just goes to show you that there's really bad apples in every group. But also something that's really important to remember is that Valerie Solanus herself never really aligned with feminism. She didn't find fellow feminists in New York to, you know, to talk with and work with. She was very alone and isolated in her extremist ideas and never really felt understood by anyone around her. She was super smart and felt like nobody was really ever listening to her. She was sexually abused at a young age by her father, and she was separated from her mom and dad a lot as well. So she didn't exactly live the easiest life, and it was probably inevitable that something like this would happen to her. So so while Valerie is definitely not someone to be looked up to, she is definitely someone who changed the course of women's history. Now, since I don't have my friend with me, I don't have Keegan. I would really love for all of you to respond to some of the things that you heard today. I would really, really, really love to hear from you. So go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. Direct message me at angryneighborhoodfeminist. I want to hear what you have to say. I really want to get your reactions, okay? I think the only things I didn't mention in the beginning was that you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter. We're on there sometimes at YAMF Podcast, Y-A-N-F Podcast. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can also rate and review us on that Facebook business page. We check it and we use those reviews for Reviews Day Tuesday as well. And you can also chat with the other listeners in the group page. Let's see if you don't already. You can listen to us on Radio Public. It is a free app. It gives us a few cents every time you listen to us. And we really appreciate it. It's awesome. So I didn't mention this at the top of the episode, but I went through a lot of sources. But the ones that I went through the most was actually Brianne Fah's biography, just called Valerie Solanis, A Biography. I looked at her Wikipedia page. I read an article on history.com. And I also read a really wonderful article in artnews.com. I got my original idea, like I said, from the podcast episode of Female Criminals about Valerie Solanis. And I think that just about covers it. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. That's all I've got for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye.